Welcome back to the second part of our colorectal cancer voyage. I've been using that word a lot this week. I need to come up with another intro. But our second episode on colorectal cancer, the best and brightest of ESMO 2023. Once again, I am joined by my co-conspirator, Josh. How are you doing today, Josh? Michael, I am still just most excellent. Thank you for asking. That is good to hear. Well, let's not beat around the bush, as it were. Josh, do you want to dive right in? Because this is an interesting one. We're starting with some of the good stuff here, ladies and gentlemen. It is the Code Break 300 study, the phase three version of Satorosib plus Panitumumab versus standard of care for KRAS G12C mutated patients. Yep, that's that's the summary. Uh, let's go for a swim, Michael. So Michael already gave you the introduction, but we know Sotorasib works in KRAS G12C. It was recently approved in the lung cancer sphere. As a bit of a background, oncogenic KRAS mutations, specific G12C mutations, occur in about 3% of the colorectal cancer population and can be associated with a poor prognosis. If we head back into the history books of the Code Break series, there was Code Break 100, which showed an objective response rate of about 10% using Sotorasib and a median progression-free survival of four months with that mutation, which inherently begs the question, what are the resistant mechanisms and is there something that's bypassing this, this, this drug, essentially? So the rationale for combining both an anti-EGFR therapy and a KRAS G12C inhibitor is that you think they think they can... F- they can stop that feedback reactivation of the MAP kinase pathway. So there is a strong rationale for this dual treatment. And there was a code break 101, which showed that Sotorasib and Panitumumab achieved objective response rates of about 30%. So you can see there's some background data for this, and this is an overall expansion of that given it's a phase three study. So it's a global, randomized, open-label, active-controlled study of Sotorasib plus panitumumab in metastatic colorectal cancer. So not to bore anyone or just Michael in this case, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of those details. Sotorasib was given at two different doses, which was an arm A and arm B. And arm C was investigator choice, which was Lonserf or Regorafenib. And they were randomized one to one to one. Inclusion criteria, the classic, you needed to have a KRAS G12C mutation, one prior, at least one prior line of therapy, and had to have progressed on a fluoropyrimidine, renotecan, and oxaliplatin. So you're going to have to have Folfox or Folfiri in your history of this study, which is good because that is the standard of care. Good ECOG status and measurable disease. The primary endpoint, Mikey, was progression-free survival with the secondary endpoints being overall survival and objective response rates. They had some technical wizardry when it came to statistics with the primary analysis. They wanted 90 events for the PFS to power it at 90%. And the secondary endpoints for overall survival is descriptive at the moment because they need 80 overall survival events. My impression of that, if it's still ongoing, mean there haven't been 80 events and I'm quite excited for this. I'm building, I'm building. Baseline baseline characteristics, most people in their 50s, balance between the sexes, most had a good performance status. About 50 something percent had a left-sided tumor, 45% was right-sided in the first arm, 
which is probably the highest right sided of the three arms. And then 68 and 69 in each of the arm B and arm C had left sided tumors. So remember, arm A is the high dose of the sodoracid and the panitumumab, where arm B is a lower dose of sodoracid and the panitumumab. When you look at the primary endpoints, the median follow up at present was 7.8 months, with a median progression free survival at the higher dose, or arm A, was 5.6 months with a hazard ratio of 0.5. 0.49 with a p-value of 0.006 so we've got a statistically significant tick for that one arm 2 was 3.9 months also statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.58 and arm 3 which was i'm assuming the control arm was 2.2 months so you can see that arm a was about 50 percent better which is not too bad looking at the subgroup analysis mikey it favored sotoracib and panitumab across all the subgroups but if you look in the detail the dirty detail of those forest plots a lot of them do cross one and I mean maybe that were smaller numbers you can see there was like 50 in the people who had initial diagnosis of less than 16 months so they're not huge numbers of patients and maybe that's why but overall everything trended towards favoring the sotoracib and the panitumumab at that higher dose looking at act activity outcomes, the objective response rate was far higher in the arm A, which was 26% versus 6% for the lower dose of sodoracid and 0% in the treatment of physician's choice or the two options that you were given, which was regorafenib or Lonsurf. And if we sort of keep moving down the disease control rate, not bad, Mikey. 72% in arm A, 68 in arm B, and 46 in arm C. You saw 80% of patients have some form of tumor shrinkage in arm A versus 57 versus 20. There's definitely a theme. And if we move to overall survival, and I heed with caution overall survival because this is not mature, you can see that arm A has a hazard ratio of 0.77. 32% of patients have died, and medium follow-up is still quite short of 8.1 months, with arm B having a hazard ratio of 0.91, with a similar death percentage and a similar follow-up. And arm C has 37% that have currently passed away. From a safety profile perspective, pretty similar to prior and expected studies. So we saw grade three or more treatment-related adverse events was 36% in arm A, 30% in arm B, and a whopping 43% in arm C. Now, it's not a whopping, but this is a standard of care arm, right? So you're having more tox in the traditional treatment than in the newer treatment, which I always find a favorable drive towards better quality of life. And I'm a huge proponent for that. Moving to common side effects. So you saw hypophosphatemia, rash, and diarrhea. Although interestingly, the lower dose of sodoracib saw higher hyperphosphatemia than the higher dose of sodoracib. I don't really know why, but that's just something quite interesting. From a standard of care, you saw nausea, anemia, and neutropenia being more common. Michael, what is our conclusion? It met the primary endpoint of progression-free survival. We need more treatment options in this cohort. And I know it's 3%, but that's 3% that could have a PFS of at least six months and an increased overall survival. They found that it favored the combination group. It had a higher objective response rate and disease control rate. And while overall survival is immature, I'm tentatively excited to say this could be a new standard of care or a new option for this subgroup of patients. And this blows my mind because 
Color Vector Cancer has three standard of care options and then you're done. So very, very, very excited to see the future of this class of drug. Everything's coming up Millhouse by the sounds of things for Sotorazib. It is, hopefully. I mean, you know, it's a it's a first trial, and but it's an exciting, exciting future to be in oncology. Very, very true. We say that a lot on this show, but that makes it no less true. Josh, I think we might take a bit of a sojourn to the sands of Egypt. Not actually Egypt, but our next study is called the Cairo 5 study. And so if you want to fire up your uh, imaginations and imagine riding a ship of the sands, that's a camel for those of you who don't know, into this study, which is examining the first line systemic treatment in patients with initially unresectable colorectal cancer liver mets. And this is the overall survival data. Analogy broke down a little bit there, but I stand by it. The background to this study is that there is no consensus regarding the management of patients with resectable colorectal cancer liver metastases. And so this is one of the first. We had a similar study or a study that was looking at a similar subject in our last episode, but this is a prospective phase three study comparing the most active and currently used systemic treatments in those with initially unresectable colorectal cancer with liver metastases defined by a panel of surgeons and specialized radiologists based on a predefined set of criteria. The trial design is quite confusing, but I'll do my best to summarize it with words. I'll paint a word picture. Patients were enrolled who had initially unresectable colorectal cancer with liver metastases, abbreviated here as CRLM. A panel evaluation confirmed unresectability. So this was defined by not resectable by resection only in one stage. So they would have to have multiple goes at it effectively. Patients were divided by whether they were RAS-RAF mutated or wild type, and if they were had a right or left-sided primary. So the two overarching arms that you should keep in mind with this study are RASRAF mutated or right-sided primary or both in one side and RASRAF wild type and left-sided primary on the other. In the mutant and right-sided arm, we've got two sub-arms, which we will christen A and B. Arm A had Folfox or Folfiri plus Bev and arm B had Folfox Siri plus Bev. So this is actually answering or attempting to answer a question we had in the last episode, which is whether escalation of treatment for patients with right-sided high-risk colorectal cancer is beneficial. In our RASRAV wild-type and left-sided arm, patients were randomized to receive either Folfox and Folfiri plus Bev or Folfox and Folfiri plus Panitumumab. So this actually marries in very nicely with the results of the uh, TRICE study from yesterday, where it was found that a triplet chemotherapy was no better than a doublet with a biologic. So Folfox and Folfiri were based on patient preference, but the main focus of these two arms, arm C and arm D, was the biologic Bev versus Panatumumab. There was a panel evaluation every two months for resectability assessment. And at the time when patients were deemed to be resectable, they went to surgery. All established local treatments were allowed. That's ablation, two-stage surgery, portal vein embolization. So got that? No, that's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll try and make it a bit clearer. Patients were stratified by potentially resectable, that's after the treatment, versus permanently unresectable, whether they had a normal or abnormal serum LDH, oxaliplatin versus urinotecan, and whether they had a BRAF mutation or not. The idea behind this is that when comparing arm A and B, the triplet therapy is better than doublet chemotherapy. Arm C and D, panitumumab is better than bevacizumab. Inclusion criteria, aside from the cancer characteristics, patients had to have a good performance status, as you would expect. They had to be greater than 18 years old. They were allowed to have 
extra hepatic lesions, but they had to be less than one centimetre and not clearly suspicious for metastatic disease. The primary tumour should be resectable, so no massive T4 lesions. And after initial recruitment, the study was amended to exclude um, BRAF mutated and or right-sided tumours in arms C and D. But these were included in the analysis if already randomised. So depending on exactly how many there were in that small group of patients who preceded this amendment, that's a bit of a source of error or a potential source of error. In terms of patient characteristics, relatively balanced across the four arms uh, with obviously higher rates of RAS and RAF mutation in the uh, appropriate arm. The majority of patients had synchronous metastases. The median number of uh, liver metastases was 12 across all four arms. About half of the patients had normal serum LDH. And the vast majority of patients, interestingly, Josh, had oxaliplatin. But I guess given the uh, previous evidence in this space, that's not really surprising. So the primary endpoint. in We'll start with arms A and B first. Hold on to your butts. This is where it gets a bit confusing. The median PFS for um, A and B was nine months for the doublet chemotherapy and 10 months for the triplet chemotherapy. This was a hazard ratio of 0.76, statistically significant, but again, jury is probably a bit out as to whether it's clinically significant or clinically meaningful. The overall response rate was 33 versus 54% favoring the triplet. The R0 or R1 resection rate was 37 versus 51%. Grade 3 adverse events, flipping that coin, was 59 versus 76%. And the grade 3 post-operative complications was 15 versus 27%. And while this was not statistically significant, Josh, that's something that is always a bit worrisome. In terms of the overall survival, with a median follow-up of 58 months... The overall survival was 23.6 months with the Folfox Folfiri Bev versus 24.1 months with the triplet. Hazard ratio of 0.92 with a p-value of 0.52. So this is a lovely and honestly quite rare instance where two studies have synergistically but independently come to the same conclusion, which is triplet does not really improve outcomes in this space. That was arm A and B. And so now we move to arm C and D for a bit of a refresher. This is the patients who had doublet chemotherapy. All patients had doublet, but the difference was whether they got bevacizumab or panitumumab. Once again, the median PFS was very similar across the two arms. With BEV, it was 10.8 months. With panitumumab, 10.4 months. Hazard ratio of 1.1 with a p-value of 0.46, so very much not statistically or even numerically significant. The overall response rate was 53 versus 80%, favoring panamatumumab with a p-value of less than 0.01. However, before you all sit up and wag your tails, this did not correlate with a better R0 or R1 resection. There was similar rates of grade 3 adverse events and grade 3 post-operative complications. There was also no difference in the median overall survival time between these two arms. So to summarize, because Josh, I think I have uh, provided enough of an avalanche of numbers. So let's put this all into context as we always try and do on this show. Cairo 5, there's a lot to commend it. It is the first randomized prospective study that evaluated systemic induction regimens in patients with unresectable colorectal cancer with liver mets, according to this predefined criteria. But the long and the short of it is whether you go for doublet or triplet, in the right-sided or RASRAF mutant arm with bevacizumab, or if you go 
Folfox, Folfiri, Bev, Panatumumab in the left-sided or Raz wild type arm, you can't really go wrong because the outcomes are pretty equivalent. So it's not going to help us gain consensus, Josh, by any means, but there are so many options suggested by this study that you can almost just throw a dart, toss a dart, and whatever it lands on will be appropriate. There's no there's no winner here. I think I'm speechless. No, I think it's a very complex trial and it's very difficult to try and do it justice. But you're right, there is no difference and there is between the two arms. And I guess you can say if that's the case, why don't you use the chemotherapy with fewer toxicities? I think that's probably the uh, the guiding light here, the one takeaway that you can sort of put money on is patient preference and minimize toxicity. Exactly. And so the nice thing about this is that it's it's probably almost a de-escalation trial to an extent in some cases where you might want to hit them hard, but hitting them hard doesn't necessarily change the scene, the landscape, the future direction of this patient's care. Absolutely. I think this this concept of hitting patients hard, particularly in the colorectal cancer space, we're finding that it's not really, it doesn't really stand up to a rigorous scientific study. No, but do you know what might stand up to sci- rigorous scientific study, Michael? What's that, Josh? The next trial and the final one in our colorectal mini-series, which is called the ASCOL trial. Ascolt. Ascolt. All right, so the Ascolt trial is looking at aspirin after standard adjuvant therapy in colorectal cancers. This was an international phase three RCT, and it was a great study because it was um, investigator initiated, and I love that, and it's looking at repurposing standard of care drugs that might provide future reduction in risk options. So the background of colorectal cancer is that it's rising in incidence in low and middle income countries and also young adults. There was a big New York Times article on it a couple of months ago and it's been in The Guardian. It's it's everywhere. And they're not really sure why. They think it's a combination of factors. We know that Bevacizumab, Cetuximab and Arenotecan have not shown benefit in the adjuvant setting. And aspirin, we know there's robust evidence in primary prevention of polyp, but could this be translated into reducing the risk of recurrence for colorectal cancer? Who knows? Tune in to find out. We we do know that, so this trial is essentially looking at whether aspirin will work in those that have had established cancer. There have been observational studies that have shown benefit in the colorectal cancer space. There was a nurse's health study and a Dutch study. And the question that they also pose is that there might be some evidence in a PIK3CA mutation. And so none of these questions have been answered, but the ASCOL trial might do that. It's a pretty old trial. It started in 2007. And Michael, I wrote a little joke here. That's when you were in primary school. It's in my notes. It's in my notes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. A spontaneous stand-up master you are not, Josh. I I deserve that. But moving on from my hilarity. So the primary endpoint was disease-free survival and the secondary endpoint was overall survival at five years and looking at the outcome of that PIK3CA mutated subgroup. So from a characteristics perspective, 54% were East Asian, 13% 13% were South Asian and 28% were Caucasian and similar in both arms. Note that Dukesy was 50% in both arms. Michael, do you remember learning about the Dukes criteria? Oh, a long time ago, Josh. 
a long, long time ago, and I subsequently forgot it because I no longer use it. Uh, it was predominantly T3 and T4 tumors, though, so that, that should hopefully mean a little bit more. And from an adjuvant therapy, about 40% had Kpox, 30% had Folfox, and about 80% of the adjuvant cohort had had oxaliplatin as a historical treatment. The primary endpoint showed disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.91. This was not statistically significant with the p-value of 0.38. They found that the disease-free survival, so 20.6% in the aspirin arm versus 22.8% in the placebo arm, so that, that was sort of the recurrence rates in these cohorts. The secondary endpoint was overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.75 and a p-value of 0.11 with 7.3 events percent events of events in the aspirin cohort and 9.5 percent in the placebo cohort from an adverse events they did find fewer rates of acute myocardial infarction and ischemic strokes in the aspirin arm but this was small and not statistically significant and the GI bleeding interestingly was exactly the same across both arms. The forest plot didn't show any evidence of heterogeneity in any subgroups apart from those that were not exposed to oxaliplatin but that's a very small cohort so you know that's very difficult to interpret so essentially this was a negative study. The thing is there are numerous other studies looking at aspirin so the verdict is not out yet regarding whether adjuvant aspirin reduces the risk of recurrence. And they're all being compiled in, I think it's called the Prosperal Meta-Analysis. So I look forward to in a couple of years when that reads out to kind of see when you have thousands upon thousands of patients to actually give us some data. The thing is we can't exclude that there is some benefit, right? So there's an, there's 10% benefit in reducing recurrence and a 25% benefit in overall survival if you look at that hazard ratio. But again, not statistically significant. So it's a bit difficult to kind of advise your patients on which way to head. It would be great if it does turn out to have a benefit though, Josh, because I think that would set a record for cheapest anti-cancer therapy ever. Exactly. It would be tamoxifen on steroids. Absolutely. So that concludes our colorectal cancer mini series with a little bit of a bang so join us tomorrow for more esmo related explosions of evidence and numbers and probably even more dad jokes tomorrow we'll be talking about non-small cell lung cancer or will we josh and i have made absolutely no secret that we're flying by the seat of our pants here so you never know what you will get next time Regardless, we hope you join us for more Oncology Fun. I'm running towards tomorrow's episode, Michael, and I'm slightly short of breath. I will see you then. (laughs) See you then. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.